below there are stores and above there are the factories, sweatshops. <laughs> Basically, slaves up there. The people and sounds of Los Angeles's garment district, notorious for sweatshop conditions, abuse, and the outright theft of earned wages. Yet the name brand clothes that some of us are wearing right now may have been produced in factories like these. I'm Monica Lopez, and you're listening to Making Contact. In this episode, we join the producers of Rework Radio, Stephanie Ratopper and Seba Wahid, on a trip through LA's garment district. The area we're walking through now is known for its wholesale and retail clothing shops. In Spanish, those are Los Callejones, or the alleyways. We turn off the main road into the most famous of the alleys, Santi Alley. With all the sounds and people walking around, it almost feels like a street party. If that street party was a bunch of people looking for cheap clothing. How much money are you going to spend today, do you think? Uh, no idea. $30. Like $30 or more. Yeah. What's your maximum? What's like your limit? Like 50. 50, 50, yeah. 50 yeah. What do you think you can get for $50? I think to get like shirts, some sweaters. sweaters yeah. shoes. How many of how many? Like, like two. two of each. Two sweaters, two, two shoes. shirts. Yeah, and two shirts. And two shoes? Yeah. Nah, maybe. Those aren't special. <laughs> As we walk through the alleys, Retailers standing by shop entrances call out to customers to lure us inside. One lady has a small stand where she sells bubble guns and mechanical toys. This is just the first step into the garment district. It's a place where there is so much unseen behind the bustling streets. In many ways, understanding the garment district is key to understanding L.A. and many other places like it across the country. In an economy where manufacturing is on the decline, it tells us a lot about the manufacturing that's left. It's a retail center for people looking for a bargain, but it also reveals a lot about immigrant life in L.A. It's also a place that's fast moving, a place for great creativity, great dreams, and also great risk. We move past the sales racks and crowds and enter into a building behind the alleyways onto the second floor. The hallway is plain, neglected, with closed doors and fluorescent lights buzzing above. Behind the doors, you can hear the constant hum of sewing machines and garment presses. Inside the barren industrial rooms are rows of workers cutting, sewing, ironing, and assembling garments. LA used to have a thriving manufacturing industry, but now much of that work is gone. Now the garment industry is the second largest manufacturing employer in Los Angeles, behind producing transportation equipment. Irma has been working in the garment district for over 30 years. She migrated here on her own, leaving behind her four sons in Mexico. Right now we're walking with her in the garment district. I know the streets by heart. It's if I live here because I spend more time here than anywhere else. If you work here, you only go home to sleep. You leave early in the morning and you get home late at night. They say the stores are where gabachos come to shop. They come here because it's affordable. Supposedly it's cheaper. 
Yes, there are a lot of people that come here to shop to make a living. Though Irma started out doing sewing, as she's gotten older, she's transitioned to doing packaging and shipping, inspecting clothing before it goes out. I work in the clothes inspection. I check for any defects that the clothes have. I follow them, and if it goes in the back, I place it in the back. The rest are in charge of sewing and finishing the pieces. We get to the corner of Pico and Maple, and she points to a huge building on the corner. It's a majestic brick building over 10 stories high that looks like it may have seen its heyday at the turn of the century. The years and city air have darkened it, and now every window in the building reveals clues that each level houses garment factories. Irma used to work at a factory inside. Inside is, uh, well, machines, and sometimes a lot of trash, papers, papers that come from the job, you know. In the evening, they take out tons of trash, and sometimes you walk in, and you walk into the trash, I tell you. I would love for television channel to come and see the conditions of these factories. Yeah, it's really hot sometimes. There isn't even a fan to cool off. Yes, I tell you, this is how people make a living, and a bits and pieces. Well, here there are a lot of stores and tons of clothing stores where, uh, here in the alleys. Below there are stores and above there are the factories, sweatshops. <laughs> Basically, slaves up there. Many people may think of China and Bangladesh when they think of people sewing our clothing. But Los Angeles has developed a niche market in women's fashion for trendy, almost disposable clothing known as fast fashion. Over 45,000 workers, mostly Latino and Asian immigrants, sew garments right here in LA. Usually, workers don't make an hourly rate. Instead, they work on what's called a piece rate, earning cents on the dollar for every piece they produce. The industry operates in this way to maximize how quickly and cheaply clothes can get out the door. Once a style hits the catwalk, retailers clamor to get it into the stores as soon as possible. Thousands of small factories compete for those contracts. To win the bid, they must work with very small profit margins. The pressure is immense to slash workers' wages and keep them in substandard working conditions. And for workers, it's hard to speak up because these employers can easily replace them. Like the clothes they are making, they become disposable. Right now, we are here headed to Pico and Maple. When I came to work here, um, I wasn't very welcome. The building was really dirty, and the shops, oh, it was a mess everywhere. Well, I was able to get the boss to fix up at least a little bit. At least I was able to get him to change the microwave. Oh, it was so dirty that it was ready to be thrown away. That was at least one change I was able to make. Hmm? I try to tell them to my co-workers to raise their voices that we need to defend ourselves and that we should try to get things to change our work for our health more than anything because while we're getting asthma, back pain, our lives are at stake. Back on the main streets, we enter another big industrial building and walk up to the second floor. We walk down a cavernous and fluorescent-lit hallway where our words echo off the walls, passing garment factories and storage facilities along the way. At the end of the hallway, we find the Garment Worker Center, a workers' rights organization dedicated to organizing garment workers in Los Angeles. 
There's a huge mural on the wall that says Costureros Unidos, Garment Workers United. Waiting in the office for us is Eulalia. She's there with her two little sons who are running around while we talk. She's a garment worker and a mother of four. She came to the U.S. from Guatemala when she was 18. When she first arrived in the U.S., so many things took getting used to, including the food. Well, for me, when I arrived here, it was hard. I spent a month without eating because I didn't like the food here in the United States. I was used to eating food from Guatemala, beans, vegetables. Over there, it has so much flavor. Over here, you buy vegetables, and they <laughs> just don't have the same flavor. It doesn't taste the same, so I decided... Well, I'm not going to eat. <laughs> then she found Maruchan's soup, instant ramen packets. Over there in Guatemala, Maruchan soup, we can buy it. Sometimes you can find it, but it is rare. And for me, Maruchan soup is really good. <laughs> I tell myself, well, I'm here. I made it to a place where Maruchan soup is everywhere, and I like it. <laughs> But then I started to get tired of eating it so much. So Eulalia began working as a garment worker in downtown Los Angeles. At first, she didn't even know how to use a sewing machine. She grew up in a very rural part of Guatemala, where most people worked the land for a living. She had to learn everything, even how to thread the sewing machine. Since she worked on the piece rate, the first week she only took home $64. But she kept at it motivated by the thought of making a living for her daughters. She started to get faster. Then, in 2012, after working two full weeks, the company she was with refused to pay her the money she was owed. She was shocked and devastated and decided to quit. But after she quit, she kept thinking about the money they owed her. After some conversations with friends, she realized this wasn't right. She decided to go back to her boss and ask him for the money. And the manager told me, you know what? He told me, you can't come in here because you no longer work here. Why not? I told him. I worked and you're not paying me. Leave. Get out the door right now, he told me. I went to ask like three times by myself, and maybe because I am a woman or because I was alone or who knows. Each time he told me, no, you can't come in, leave. Every time he found another excuse to tell me that he didn't want to see me in the factory to stop wasting his time. Eulalia talked to her brother about what had happened. She wanted to file a formal complaint with the California Labor Commissioner, but her brother thought that if they went together, her old boss would listen. And my brother went with me, and the manager wanted to hit my brother in the shop. He knew that the law would be on his side because my brother doesn't work there, and he could say he's causing problems. So my brother left, and I was leaving through the door. The manager's sister got there, and she grabbed me. She scratched me. She hurt me. At first, she called me stupid Guatemalan. She said, to get to the United States, you have to cross two borders. So, okay, I'm from Guatemala. But that's not relevant because she's undocumented too. I am too. So I told her, you know what? You don't have papers either. That's why you're working here with me. Eulalia's boss called the police. When they arrived on the scene, they turned to Eulalia. They accused her of instigating a fight and started to write up a citation. And just like that, 
the police handcuffed Eulalia and showed her to the back of the police car. Even though Eulalia's boss was the one who had broken the law by not paying her, it was Eulalia who ended up in jail. You're listening to an excerpt of Los Callejones, a documentary on downtown LA's Garment District, produced by Rework Radio. After the break, Eulalia describes what happened after she was arrested. And later on, we'll hear my interview with Marisa Nuncio, the director of LA's Garment Worker Center. For more information about this or past shows, or to make a difference by supporting our work, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to the documentary, Los Callejones. Her youngest son was a baby at the time, at home with the babysitter. And I asked the police, I have my baby. What am I going to do? What's going to happen with my son? The police told me, don't worry, you're only going to be in jail two or three hours. But it's not true. I went in on Friday afternoon and got out on Sunday morning. My son stayed with the babysitter without her knowing what had happened, only that I didn't come home. Going to jail was frightening for Eulalia, who had never had this kind of run-in before with the law. When I arrived, they fingerprinted me, they took a picture of me, they didn't ask for papers, but they locked me up in a room where many people were in jail for different things, for drugs, for fighting. And it's, it's dirty, it's not clean. I stayed there for about two, three hours there until they transferred me to another room in which I was by myself. It was close, it was very cold. The whole time, the light is on day and night. You don't even know what time to eat or what time to sleep. I remember that there was a public telephone and I called my son's father and told him, I'm going to eat. I asked him, what time is it? It turns out they were giving me food at two in the morning. I didn't know what time it was because I was locked up. She went in on a Friday afternoon without any idea of when she would get out. Each night she went to sleep without knowing how her family was or even if she would get deported. Finally on Sunday morning, the station released her. Unfortunately, Eulalia's story is not unique. In Los Angeles, the garment industry ranks the worst in stealing wages, underpaying, and having poor health and safety conditions. Over half of garment workers don't make minimum wage, and 93% never receive overtime pay. There are laws on the books to prevent this. For example, AB 633 says that retailers and manufacturers are responsible for the factory working conditions, even if they subcontract. But the truth is that this is very hard to enforce. Oftentimes, workers won't complain because they've seen what happens to fellow workers when they speak up. Even in the best case scenario, where workers report wage theft violations to the California Labor Commissioner, most never recover their stolen wages. Many times, garment companies quickly close down and open up under another name. For me, one of the things I found the most striking about talking with Eulalia is the way that she talked about her two daughters. They're both still in Guatemala. 
One daughter is 11 years old and the other is 10. When she talks about them, you can hear her voice shaking. What I'm doing is working, sitting at a sewing machine every day to give my daughters a better future so that they can study, so that they can buy clothes, so that they won't feel bad like I do. One time my daughter, the oldest one, told me, Mom, when are you coming back to us? And I told her, I can't go back. I told them that because, well, I can't return because I don't have papers. It's okay, she told me, it's okay. What we want is for you to fight for us. Send us money. One day, I will be able to see my daughters. I said I would go in for a week to see them. <laughs> if that were possible, to see them and hug them. If only it were possible to come back again. When Ulalia talks with them, she knows that they have grand ideas about her life in the U.S. They watch TV and they hear the stories, so they think Los Angeles is a place full of rich people where people can buy new outfits every day. I tell them, here in the United States, I'm not living a luxurious lifestyle. I don't have much money. And it's not like every day I go out and buy new clothes. Because maybe they think, wow, my mom is dressed very nice over there. Or my mom has a lot of money. With 30 quetzales, I dress myself. But when I send money for clothes, I have to send $400, $500 because they wear much nicer clothing than I do. They use traditional clothing. You are in the United States and you eat meat every day, my mom tells me. But you get bored of that kind of food, I tell them. Over there you can work, plant, and grow your food. You have everything. Everywhere you go, a neighbor will offer you a cup of coffee. A neighbor will give you something. Here, nothing. I say because it's true. Here, no one is going to give you anything. No one. Even if you are dying of hunger, even if you say, oh, I have no money, where could I visit someone who will share a cup of coffee or some food? We return now to Irma, the garment worker we spoke with earlier in the show. Ten years ago, Irma had lost hope. One day at work, her boss cornered her and sexually assaulted her. It was the last straw, and she didn't know what to do. She left and went to the bus stop, crying. There, an organizer from the Garment Worker Center approached her. They saw me crying at the bus stop and asked me, what's going on? I told them that I was having problems. I didn't know what to do. I was, I was working all that I could. The man said he could take me somewhere where they could help me. That's how he brought me here, and I met Delia. She told me, usually we don't take this type of cases here, but we will help you. We will help you to stand up for yourself and, and help you so that you're not afraid. And then I started to gain courage, and now I do stand up for myself. The Garment Worker Center is a place where workers can go to get help. The organizers train people on health and safety laws and empower workers to demand their stolen wages. In an industry where it's so hard to speak up, people start to get the courage to speak up and band together to tell their stories. Irma now does more than just stand up for herself. She also encourages others to fight for their rights. 
Well, we don't have many other options but to take these jobs. The most we can do is try. We would try to stand up for ourselves and not to be humiliated or let the boss kick us around. It's the only thing we can do because we are, we are worth a lot. Because without us, they don't have a business. It might seem hard to imagine a different way of working in the garment district, but it's not that far out of reach. Not too long ago, Irma had a job in the garment district, a good job. In fact, she worked there for 20 years. We work on Santi Alley. Afterwards, we moved to Soto. But we always had the same boss. Yeah, that boss was very good. He was one of the kind, and he was very good. Then he died, and I have to look for a new place to work. And to this day, I haven't been able to find a job that's very good. <laughs> I like that we could work calmly. There wasn't any screaming or mistreatments. We could do what we wanted. They used to joke that he didn't tell us what to do, that we told him what to do. Yeah, it was a nice experience. We never needed anything when we worked with him. We always had what we needed. It could be this way. There's a way for the garment district to be the place where the industry can thrive and where people can feel proud to be a part of it. Thanks to Rework Radio's Stephanie Ritopper and Saba Wahid for allowing us to air that excerpt of their documentary, Los Callejones. The production of Los Callejones was made possible with support to Rework from Cal Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can hear the entire documentary by going to reworkradio.org. There's one group in Los Angeles that's been organizing with garment workers for better pay and protections since 2001. That's the L.A. Garment Worker Center. The group's director is Marisa Nuncio, who joins us by phone from Los Angeles. Marisa, the Garment Worker Center has been working toward ending wage theft and other abuses for many years now. In the program that we just heard, Saba and Stephanie said that Los Angeles is one place that people should really learn about if they want to better understand the issues and circumstances for garment workers in other parts of the country. Would you explain why that is? Sure. I think the importance of our industry is, one, its size and the fact that it's home to over 45,000 garment workers. It's actually the second largest manufacturing sector of Los Angeles, and it's the garment production capital of the entire country. Most of what we see produced in Los Angeles is known as fast fashion, typically women's clothing. And the reason it's called fast fashion is because it responds to over a dozen fashion seasons a year. What that means is that every few weeks there are new looks that are being produced and that are hitting the shelves and hitting the runway. And that is why Los Angeles is so significant to this production. How are you organizing with workers to make changes for their benefit? Usually our first interaction with workers is because uh, they've come to us with a wage claim or some other problem in their factory. But we're also very clear that wage claims and legal remedies 
are really um, only one part of the solution. You know, we believe in sort of the meat of our mission is improving working conditions in this industry. And we wholeheartedly believe that to do that, workers have to have collective power. It's It's got to be pressure from workers on the industry that, that's going to create this change. And so our job and our mission is to support that collective power. We also know that we have to come at it from the angle of what we call brand-based organizing or brand accountability, that those garment brands such as Charlotte Russe or Forever 21 that are producing here must take responsibility for the working conditions in the factories that they use. Are there any particular policy components that you're working on right now? Yeah, we are. We, together with the Los Angeles Wage Theft Coalition, we pass city ordinance that includes certain provisions to better protect against wage theft and to offer collection mechanisms for unpaid wages. And it actually created an office of labor standards enforcement at the city level. That ordinance also raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2020, by the year 2020. Mm-hmm. So the $15 minimum wage does impact you all because you're in the city of Los Angeles. It does technically impact us, right, because um, production is here in Los Angeles within the city limits of Los Angeles. However, practically speaking, it won't affect garment workers at all. Garment workers are typically making anywhere from um, about 450 to, you know, 550 an hour. So garment workers were earning far below the minimum wage um, of you know, $9 an hour last year, and now $10 an hour this year, they won't be making $15 an hour because the level of wage theft is so rampant in the garment industry. As an organization, we support lifting up the minimum wage. That makes sense for, for the industries and the workers that it impacts. Our work within that coalition and within that ordinance campaign was to push for the wage theft provisions because that's what impacts garment workers. It could, the minimum wage could be $30 an hour, it could be $100 an hour, it could be $7 an hour, and workers are not earning that. Yeah. So it's the enforcement is what you're saying, and there aren't enough people to enact the enforcement of those policies. Right. I mean, that's part of it. You know, it's, it's the reality of this industry is it's one of entrenched sweatshop abuses. And so the blame lies at many levels. You know, as I said, it, I, I believe um, that it starts with the brands that absolutely are profiting from this labor and um, are knowingly paying insufficient contract prices for there to be sufficient and legal wages. And it absolutely is inadequate enforcement. You know, ironically, California has very, very strong state law that protects garment workers, but we have enforcement issues. We have, you know, not enough investigators. We have insufficient hearing officers. And so there's years of delay from the time a worker files their wage claim to the time that they see a decision. In that time, the factory closes down, they change names, they transfer assets. So often when a garment worker 
gets to the end of their case and they've already put their you know neck on the line, perhaps been retaliated and lost their job or been blacklisted in the industry, that factory's gone by the time they reach a decision. Marisa Nuncio, director of the L.A. Garment Workers Center, thank you for speaking with us. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. We want to hear your stories, too. Send them to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks to Rework Radio Sabah Wahid and Stephanie Ratopper for sharing that audio with us. To hear the full-length documentary, visit reworkradio.org or our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. The Making Contact team includes Quan Booth, Jasmine Lopez, Lisa Rudman, Andrew Stelzer, and Laura Flynn. I'm Monica Lopez. Until next time, thanks for listening to Making Contact.